Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Marcus Adrian, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you, John. Man, we are delighted to have you on the show. And I, I work with a team of folks, producers that help me bring in great talent. One of the producers, her name is Abby Richter. I know a lot of our listeners are familiar with that name. I, I have never heard her more excited about a guest than you, man. And we've had some pretty legitimate guests on the Live Inspired Couch. So she's that excited, which means true. it's true. And I am totally fired up. And as fired up as we both are, I would imagine not all of our listeners are yet familiar with the name Marcus Adrian. So uh, for those who aren't, tell us a little bit about uh, who you are today. Sure. I'm an architect. I am a husband and a father. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk about how those things really um, go together and dovetail. I'm with a firm in St. Louis called Mackie Mitchell. Um, and I've, uh, almost, I've almost celebrated 20 years now with that one firm. Um, in, in addition to, um, to, to making buildings, uh, really regard myself as somebody who is a maker of the firm also, you know, really a, a sustainer of the organization and the team. Uh, and I think it's gotten to the point where I, I do that as much now as I do work on projects. And I, I'm, I'm really excited about talking about the work that you do architecturally and as a parent. But why, why don't we take this thing all the way back to where it all began you know, it's been said that everyone has a story. It's just not the story that we tell the world. And I am convinced, Marcus, that you too have a phenomenal story, one that is worthy of being shared with the world. So first, where are you from? Where were you born? Tell me about your parents. Grew up in North County. Uh, I don't know that I have a phenomenal story, but what I do have is a phenomenal family. <laughs> uh, my parents were incredibly hardworking people. Um, you know, my dad had a job in manufacturing, full-time job in manufacturing. My mom was a nurse. Uh, I can remember both of them when I was very young, finishing up graduate degrees. Uh, in addition to their professions, and when I was nine, they they um, they opened a school supply store. They both had full-time jobs, and they, they opened a retail store. Uh, and it was an amazing thing to grow up around and really, you know, um, be involved with the business. But just to see what they were capable of and how they used their time, it was, um, yeah, I think their example was probably better than anything that they actually taught us or told us. What, what was their example? Work hard. <laughs> work hard. And, you know, I, they would always tell us to work hard. They, they insisted that we get straight A's and, and, and really that we were leaders. They prepared all four of us to be leaders and professionals. But I think the thing they didn't tell us that really sunk in was um, do something meaningful with your life. Uh, my dad didn't always regard what he did as meaningful uh, in terms of his what, what he did in manufacturing. But it was clear I had some opportunities where I would go into his plant and, and even worked in one of them and got to see his interactions with people and, and the kind of natural leader that he was and, and still is really uh, in a different field. Um, but, but just that example of the way you touch other people's lives and, and what you can help them get out of themselves. Uh, both my parents really remarkable at that. Did your mom think as a nurse that she was doing meaningful work? I'm sure she did. Um, you know, we've always heard stories from her practice, not so much the, the remarkable stories about, um, you know, what people are up against, but you hear stories about what people um, uh, have overcome um, and, and what they've dealt with. And, you know, it's those stories about the human spirit that uh, have always ignited my curiosity, um, especially the ones that, that, um, that talk about human potential mm -hmm. and, and uh, you know, and, and what it can hide behind, whether you've got medical issues or, or developmental issues. Yeah, and I know those are two topics very close to your heart. And I know that not only were your parents uh, instrumental in the, the man that you became, but so were your grandparents. Talk, talk about them for a little bit. Yeah, I, I, um, four of them. Um, I was born with all four of my grandparents and, and remarkable people, each one of them in their own way. Um, two of them in particular, well, actually, really all four of them, they were a certain kind of a folk artist. They were creators. Um, one of them, my grandfather, is still alive. We just lost my grandfather, my grandmother on, on my mom's side. All the women in my family quilted. 
which is, you know, really another meditation on work ethic. You, yes. if, if you want to really, you know, delve into that, look at a quilt sometime and try to count the stitches. And, then, and imagine that you, could, you can count those stitches far faster than you can create them. Uh, and yet, at, at the end, you know, it feels like this toil of just stitch after stitch after stitch, but in the end you create something that is just such a, a, um, a, an easy, soft piece of beauty. Um, really, it's, it's, um, it's a stand, and they made hundreds of them. <laughs> <laughs> and at my grandfather in his woodshop, I got to spend uh, a number of nights in his woodshop after, you know, um, growing up and being in college, I'd, I'd go and see them in, in Jefferson City and, and just the feel of his shop, you know, everything that had been done in that shop really wasn't, wasn't fancy. He didn't have great equipment, but, you know, you turn on the country music and you just get in that shop and you just work up a sweat and really his, his father was a blacksmith and I'm lucky enough to have a few of the tools that he actually made. Uh, you, you get working with those tools and you get sweating and you, you know that, you know, you're just, your, your hands are where Freeing his hands something. were originally really really meaningful you mentioned uh, in the introduction that you are an architect we're gonna we're gonna bump into that story and what you're creating today I'm, I'm curious though in hearing that your great-grandfather was an architect your grandfather was a woodworker your grandmothers worked in quilting it, there's a lot of creation here man a lot a lot of using hands to build something that wasn't there before how do you think that influenced you as a young kid well, just being around that kind of energy, you, you have a feeling that you can do anything uh, when you see that. Uh, my, my grandfather on my dad's side, um, he was retired. I think he retired the year that I was born, which is pretty remarkable. I think he was 50. Uh, and um, after being in the military, he and his brothers, just, they came back and they decided they were going to be, uh, they, they were going to go into the, uh, the mining business, uh, rock quarries, sand plants, that sort of thing, doing really big things with big equipment. He had this place at the Lake of the Ozarks, and I remember being four, five, six years old, and the things that they would build with these big equipment and these huge, you know, 20-ton blocks of Missouri limestone. They built a seawall. They, they leveled a—you know how hilly the Ozarks are. They leveled a patch up in the woods behind the house and built this tennis court. Uh, and you look at it, and it's like, how was this even yes. possible? You know, people who, who really did big things. And for those not familiar with the Ozarks, uh, imagine the Appalachian Mountains. That That's basically what southwest Missouri is like. It's extraordinarily hilly and rocky. So to place anything remotely flat on top of it is almost impossible. And I, I can't fathom how you built a tennis courts in the middle of it all. I also don't remember him ever playing tennis. You know, his, joy, <laughs> his joy was in seeing that done, in, in doing something that big and working with people uh, to do it. So let's fast forward a little bit into uh, your your later years. When was it at the first uh, the first recognition that you realized I wanted to go into architecture? <laughs> yeah, you really don't need to fast forward very much. I think it was nine years old. Oh yeah, um, yeah, and very very different from my siblings in terms of the things that I was good at and the things that I wanted to do. Um, they like to tell me uh, on more than one occasion that I was adopted. <laughs> you just you're not like us. Um, but when you can draw and you're reasonably good at math and a few other things, there's just something about the world. People just start to whisper in your ear, you know, have you thought about being an architect? Mm-hmm. And I remember one, one, uh, afternoon before soccer practice, my dad took me and, and one of my friends and, um, drove us out to a, a good friend of his in St. Louis, who was a, a fairly prominent architect. And, uh, he took us through a studio and showed us all of his toys and his tools and everything. And, you know, just and drew for us. And that was magic. You you see an architect draw and just the effortlessness of it. And, you know, just putting the lines right where they want them to be. And I was hooked. (laughs) I was just, I don't think I ever considered another career after that. What, what was, and maybe it hasn't been built yet, but as a young kid, what was something that you designed that you were extremely proud of and you were, uh, (laughs) you know what I mean? Cause I I used to love art. Um, just drawing people and images more than uh, actual architecture. But I would imagine you sat back through buildings or huge scopes of work. Anything in particular you want to share today? I did. You know, and I don't know, they would be embarrassing to look at now, but also mildly entertaining. Yeah, I grew up in a subdivision just in just suburban North County, North St. Louis County. And uh, you have ideas about what a house looks like and what a house is like when you, you, you grow up in that context. And uh, I would sit at the drafting table in my bedroom, and I would I would design my dream house over and over and over again. And uh, you know what was interesting looking back at this point, I, I hadn't had really any exposure or training to architecture, but I was drawing plans and I was drawing 
elevations, you know, the, the straight on view of the front yes. with, with no perspective and that sort of thing. I think <laughs> I still have those. I I don't try to dig them out. It'd be a, kind of a hoot to show them to my kids. You ought to try to build it, man. I mean, let's just get after this thing. <laughs> no, I think that's one thing I'll never do. I don't think I'll build a house. I'm, I think I'm more enamored of taking something that, that someone else has built and, and finding ways to, to make it our own. And I've done that a couple times now. That seems to be your passion of uh, of maximizing the use. Let, let's kind of shift gears a little bit and, and talk about uh, about the work that you're doing today and maybe where the inspiration for it came from. Yeah. At a certain point, and this is probably um, early in my career, probably about 1999, about the time that I started working with Gene Mackey, uh, that my, my fascination really shifted from, from the idea of creating buildings. And of course, you know, still creating buildings. Um, but that was no longer really the, the primary fascination. The primary fascination, I was working on a school for deaf children, Central Institute for the Deaf in St. Louis, and really knew nothing about deafness. Uh, at the time, uh, my wife was getting her master's degree from St. Louis University in speech language pathology. Uh, and I didn't know it at the time how close, you know, speech and communication disorders and that sort of thing is to uh, to what they do in a deaf school. Mm-hmm. Um, but really exploring that fascination, it's not so much the fascination of deafness, which is really, you know, architecturally and thinking about the sensory experience that you're creating in the classroom for learning and the balance of signal and noise for for kids that have limited or no uh, ability on that sense. Um, that's a fascinating set of problems. But what was more fascinating than anything was, uh, was human potential. Um, and, and especially that stubborn, hard-to-get-at potential uh, that is enormous but hides behind uh, an, an inability to communicate or a complication with communicating, whether that's sensory or cognitive or, you know, whatever, whatever cards... Um, life has dealt that kid. I'm I'm curious. How does a guy who grew up drafting his dream home as a little guy even begin to become qualified to design the scope and the scale and the the, the work required to design something beautiful for kids learning how to hear again? It turns out that you have to ask a stupid question because uh, well, good. I, I remember I, the day we're, we're going to be in good hands then today. Yeah, yeah, I, I think. Um, and the stupid question that I asked in front of a, a lot of really, really smart people, these deaf educators, and, and also, this is also the home of uh, Washington University's graduate program in audiology. So some really smart people, and one in particular, Dr. Bill Clark, uh, who, who spent a lot of time with me. I think because I asked this stupid question, we were in a meeting, and, you know, being the young architect, you're trying to make it seem like you, you know what you're doing, which is, you know, the opposite of what you should be doing. Um, <laughs> I asked a question. The question was, you know, it, it's a deaf, it's a school for deaf children. Why, why does it have to be quiet? Why are we trying so hard to make this building quiet? Why would it matter? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that question launched, you know, uh, he was entertained by that question and really took me under his wing. About a year later, maybe a year and a half later, I, I had through asking many, many more questions, not, not quite as, you know, as obtuse as that one. Um, I'd learned a lot. I learned a great deal about acoustics, uh, Gene Mackey and Dan Mitchell sent me to a classroom acoustics conference in New York when they saw that, you know, I was really fascinated by this. And I, and I, I really gained some experience and some authority on it. A year, year and a half later, Bill and I were delivering a presentation at, the, um, at a national conference um, down in Atlanta, uh, talking about what we had accomplished in terms of background noise levels at CID. And from that point, you know, I, I was hooked. Then, you know, you're, you're on the tracks. You're, you're, you're headed off toward something that you know is meaningful because it affects lives but also really tickles your curiosity and tickles your fascination. You know, it's, it's odd, Marcus, you are mentioning this. You're, you have excitement raised in your voice when you're even talking about it. I have spoken in many of these buildings before, and uh, whether it's for the deaf or the blind or uh, general schools for those with disabilities. And my experience has been that they are some of the most vanilla, concrete, squared off buildings that I've ever been in. So I'm I'm curious why that was and what we're shifting into next. Yeah, they really shouldn't be. Um, they really ought to be beautiful. Uh, I think a lot of what you're seeing in that context when you look at schools and they're just very uninspiring and, and, and really not stimulating, which is the worst part. Um, schools have a really challenging budget, almost always. You know, you're, you're working with organizations, whether they are uh, public or private, that are 
strapped for resources. They're not just strapped for resources for, for making a building. They're strapped for resources with making, you know, whatever they're given, whether it's from donors or from the state, uh, trying to balance that out. These are really courageous people, not just because of what they've chosen to do, but the fact that they're doing it in really thankless ways uh, with, with a paucity of resources. And, and for me, what that's taught me working with those people is the remarkable empathy that they have. And, and not just taught me as a person, but taught me as an architect, because that empathy, and, and specifically, it's the ability to take yourself out of your own context and put yourself into the context of another person who might be very different from you are, and, and really have different abilities and a different context, and, and to be able to design something that is useful to them. If you don't have that empathy, you can't be a teacher, but you also can't be an architect. And I think the other thing is true is you, you're in no position to be a parent hmm. if you don't have that ability. And, you know, you talk about selflessness, and, and I think that is, the, um, that is the technique there, is to empty yourself of your own concerns first before you go and enter into their context. It sounds like a really noble thing to do until you actually try to do it. <laughs> and then it becomes very humbling because um, it, it's, um, it's a difficult thing to do. But I think you can also get better at it as you go along. So I, I know empathy is a huge part of your leadership as a, a spouse, as a dad, as an architect, as a leader. Let's talk about first why it matters to you, and then secondly, how do we grow in, in empathy? Okay, so yeah. wh- why does empathy matter, in particular in designing the structure? It doesn't seem like those two words play together at all. Yeah, uh, and, and you know that's where I started from um, because, as like I said, as a young architect, you really you're out there trying to you're kind of trying to impress your clients and impress people with what you've done and, and what you can do uh, and what you know, because they, they want to know that you're capable of doing, doing because they've got one shot. Mm-hmm. Um, th- they've got one shot to make this building, and after it's built, you sure can critique it, but you really you can't change it in any fundamental way. So the stakes are very high, and, and that plays into selection because it, what we do is a very competitive game. So there's, there's a lot that's put on you that tells you that you better be the expert. You better have all the answers. You better come equipped to know exactly what must be done. But it turns out that the opposite is really what's required. Because in order to be able to step out of your own context and learn enough about the context of the people who will be using the building, not only people that you're not going to meet, but people that aren't going to be alive when you're alive, because they're going to be using these buildings for 50 or 100 years. Mm. So even be able to, to put yourself in the context of people who are not born yet and what they might encounter, what they might be up against. The task is, it's not just, it is listening, of course. Um, many times I've compared what we do in, in programming, which is kind of the fact finding up front before we're able to design anything to really learn about what the needs are. There's a, a kind of an inquiry that we get into that feels almost like cross-examination. And, and we have, some of my colleagues have developed some really cool uh, exercises uh, that we call fire starting, actually, um, about how do, you, how do you start that conversation um, and, and what are the, the play-based exercises that we use. There's one that, that I really like called A Day in the Life, where um, you know, if you're designing a school, you'll, you'll tell the administrators, who are all grown-ups, by the way, you know, they, yes. it's, a, it's a task for them to put themselves into the context of a deaf five-year-old. <laughs> So you go through a play-based exercise with them, and they take to it immediately because they know the technique. Um, and, and you say, Let, let's go through the, a day in the life of one of your first graders or one of your fifth graders. Um, what, is, what are the things? Let's start with getting off the bus. and Let's start with getting on the bus from home. Mm. And, and what is that like? And what are the fears? What are the anxieties? What are the... What are the things that can go wrong? What are the things that can go right? And, and then you're really on to the experiences that make up um, a day, um, a year, a life uh, in that place. And if you can't do those things, if you don't have the curiosity, and if you don't have the concern that's required not just to listen, but also to, to really get in there and ask the right questions, um, then you're, really, you're not going to be in a position to design anything that's inspiring. So back to your original question, you know, you could do all those things and create a building that meets the needs of the people who are in it. But there is this element of the human spirit that requires a certain kind of, um, of stimulation that goes beyond sensory and beyond social stimulation and beyond cognitive stimulation. And these buildings need to speak to the human spirit. Because I, I think 
in each of the, especially for schools, this is where kids are going to have great mentors and great friends. And they're going to learn that not everyone is like them. And hopefully they're going to begin to learn that empathy that is going to be so important in their lives to understand that, you know, the kids who are two years younger than them are going through different things. And, oh, I kind of remember that Mm -hmm. and what that felt like. Um, And and to try to understand where are they going to interact in in those bottleneck spaces between transitioning from the cafeteria to play. If they're designed incorrectly, um, you're not allowing those kids to transition in graceful and predictable ways. If they're designed well, then you're, you're helping to manage those transitions, and, and you can actually affect the interactions and, and ensure that they're going to be more positive and, and better observed by adults and that sort of thing. Mark is going from kind of hypothetical, and uh, you know we, we're all nodding our heads. So it sounds great into yeah. practical and reality. G- give me an example of how empathy informed a decision you made in a design build. And then what you saw on the ground as you observe these little kids stepping into their days, stepping into their weeks, stepping in, into their lives. Well, it's not just um, little kids. Um, right. I would say you, you take that empathy to another level. Uh, another, th- you know, we in my firm, we design projects in almost entirely in education that are, we like to say, birth through everything. And in the university context, I'm going to give you another context here, and it's a little bit more of a nuts and bolts example of that empathy and what it does for the world, because we also work in, um, in universities, colleges and universities. And, um, and, and we do buildings, really wide variety of buildings on those campuses that, that touch um, the living and the learning and the social dimensions of, of campus life. You think about how powerful a university is in our culture and how powerful a university is in, in the life of the people who are going there. And, and you also imagine the fact that this is one of the most difficult transitions that you can make in your mm-hmm. life. You know, when you're, you're at a fairly fragile age, your, your frontal lobe is not completely developed yet. And here you are going and leaving. You're abandoning all of your support networks of the, the people who really made you who you are in high school and your parents and your siblings and your friends. And you're going to live someplace else that might be a few states away. There's a lot that can go wrong in those transitions. So there's two levels here with regard to empathy that turn out to be very specific with regard to design. One of them is, yeah, as we were talking before, just like with a deaf five-year-old, your ability to put yourself in the shoes of a college freshman yes. and everything that can go wrong in today's world, things that weren't around when you and I were there, you know, social media and, and all the pressures that that brings, drugs and alcohol that have always been there, but you know, they, they, every year they seem to be getting worse. Um, so there's that, but then on a higher level, there's another thing with regard to empathy and, and this gets into the idea of what a university is. And to me, you know, this sort of dawned on me a few years ago, university, even more than a corporation is the the greatest tool in the hands of civilization. Hmm. You think about all the things that we've done as a, as a society, as an American civilization that started at our universities. And, In the 20th century, a lot of those accomplishments had to do with going as deep as we could into a single discipline. We solved a lot of the problems that you could solve within medicine alone or within public policy alone or engineering. And I think a lot of the problems that remain, the really pervasive problems, are ones that you can't solve within an individual discipline. So, again, in a really nuts and bolts way about that empathy, what this means is that I think that's one of the most important skills that we can build into a university and a university education is the understanding that you don't have all the answers within your discipline. Hmm. That to solve the problems of the 21st century, take a problem like, like cancer or obesity. We have not solved those within medicine alone, and I don't think you can. The solutions are going to have to be found at the intersection between medicine and public policy or medicine and biology, or even medicine and nanotechnology. So the idea is that you're on this university campus with people who are studying exactly the same thing that you're studying, but you're also there with engineers. You're there with people who are going to be lawyers and policymakers. You're there with with, with people who are going to be teachers. And the idea that you could go through that life on a university campus and not be exposed to those other people and step outside not just of your own concerns and your own fascinations, but step outside of your own discipline. Mm-hmm. 
Now you see how that empathy is an essential ingredient, not just for the way that you make a school or a classroom building, but how you make a campus. And I think that that is something that has been really well understood by the people who have made college campuses uh, in this country. And you, you look at the interdisciplinary things that are going on on these campuses when something happens like a Hewlett meets a Packard. And, and they met at Stanford and they met on the football field. <laughs> they met in a social context. And Silicon Valley would not have happened without mm. that meeting. So it, it's those kinds of, of interactions that, you know, they can be on the living dimension. They can be on the social dimension. They're not always on the learning dimension. But when you put these people together with all of their remarkable human potential in that kind of a, a context of beauty and a context of, of, of understanding one another, um, that's when you, you really increase the chances of something great happening for humanity. And there's a craft to shaping a place where that can happen. You are uh, lit up when you talk about empathy, and it's my understanding that you think it ignites, to keep playing on this, these fire terminologies, it ignites human potential. Is, is, is that one of your understandings of design and also relationship? I think it may be one of the only things that ignites human potential um, because it begins with curiosity. One of the things that Gene Mackey really always, we lost Gene back in uh, November of this past year, and it was a loss that we're really feeling in the firm, but um, he, he was such a great mentor and a teacher to every one of us. Um, but in the process, we're learning to be what, what he made us uh, to one another. And that the thing that we're really trying to keep alive and, and I think doing a beautiful job of in my firm and, and in its culture um, is curiosity. Gene would always tell us, be curious. You have to stay curious. And I think that's at the heart of it, really, because if you don't care, if you're not fascinated by something, you're not going to care enough um, to really to take that leap of abandoning your own context. Because mm -hmm. I, I think of all the, all the things that could, you could do it out of altruism, I guess, but you're not going to do it for very long. But when, when you're doing it, you're doing it because there's something there that you really, you know, there's a little glint of something that, that looks like gold. Um, and you just, you just catch it enough that you're like, man, I, I really, you know, I saw that and I want to see it again. Um, it's really going to make you go after it with both hands and you roll up your sleeves and, you know, before you know it, you're, you're down there in the mud really going after it. And, and to watch my colleagues do that and to watch new people enter my firm and begin to understand that. Um, and it's, it's kind of interesting to watch them because at first there's almost a certain kind of, uh, not a resignation, but maybe a, a sort of a doubt, you know, is that going to happen for me? Am I going to find something that is really going to yeah. light me up like that? And, and you tell them, you know, you just, you have to be patient and you have to listen. And if you do, and many times it'll be right after you ask that really stupid question <laughs> <laughs> that it gets ignited for you. That, that, and I, I think there's also an element of surprise in it. Mm. Um, the surprise of discovery, when you find something that's that beautiful, whether it's a thought or a design idea, you're, you're kind of stunned by it. And it's like, well, this, this shouldn't be here. Uh, and I also imagine, you know, I've seen it as a father also. You know, you're raising these kids and there's so much frustration and, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. Parenthood is hard, but in, in all of that, in, when, when you're down in those weeds and, and really, you know, doing all the things that parents do, and then you see a little glint of something, uh, something that makes you laugh or something that makes you cry, something that one of your kids does, that really surprises you. That just ignites it all over again. That that's what it doesn't just keep you going. It's I it, think it, it's what motivates you in the first. No place. doubt about it. And Marcus, you're you're uh, talking in many regards around architecture, and yet what you're really talking about is life. Empathy is so critical, not only for an architect but for a parent. You mentioned that's one of your roles for any leader listening to our podcast today. When you have a new architect step into your firm or you are given a talk, I understand you, you do a little bit of speaking around this as well. How, how do you encourage audiences, whether it's an audience of one or an audience of thousands, to lean into empathy? How, how can we ourselves get out of our own shoes and out of our own ego and step into the world of someone else? It's something that I learned directly from uh, Gene Mackey's example. And it goes back to that example I gave you where, Dan Mitchell was with me uh, in going to those meetings at CID where I was asking at first the stupid question and then the really, the really intelligent questions that, that led me down that path. And he could see 
this guy's on a path. This guy has found something that really, you know, that there's a spark in his eye. Um, and, and not only that, but what they didn't know was that I was pursuing so many of the things that my wife was studying that would mm-hmm. be her career and her life at the same time. Dan had to be attentive to me at the same time that he's trying to really listen hard to our client in those same meetings where he was asking the hard questions. And he was really going after how do we design this school in, a, in the best possible way for this institution. He, was, he also had an eye on me. Uh, and I'm so grateful for that. And the conversations that he and Gene must have had because they sent me to that classroom acoustics conference in New York without asking me. They came to me and told me about it and said, you know, you're going to go to this. Um, so that is the kind of attention, not just to my clients, but also to my people. And like I said, it's, it's now it's like fully half of what I do of trying to really watch and, and listen to the things that are fascinating them. Because when you find that little spark of curiosity, you've got to cradle it and you've got to, you got to blow on it a bit and throw some, some, you know, some kindling at it to, to, to nurture that into the fire. And then, you know, you don't light that candle in the wind. You, you've, you've got to really protect it. And, and that I think is the first task of leadership. And then once it's going more than anything, I think you've got to get out of the way. <laughs> you got to remove yourself from that context and, and let them lead. Uh, Cause that's exactly what, what the guys who trained me did. They, they saw that, you know, once I was going on this and once I, I was writing articles and, Later, going to conferences and presenting with my wife, which is just really fascinating. Um, they, they really they got out of the way. They, they didn't try. They could have stepped in and tried to say, well, we, you know, we're partners in this firm and he's not. We have to make sure that we keep this in-house because, God forbid, he could go to another firm. You try to hold it that closely and you're going to put out that fire. Yes. You've got to give it some space and you've got to give it what it needs. But, man, it's, you've got to get out of the way. You have a heart for designing things around special needs to to elevate not only the structure but the individuals that make that structure special. Where does that come from? I, you know, I don't think I would do it if it weren't as rewarding um, as what I chose to do for a living. Uh, and that was exciting to find that, in addition to being somebody who who designs building which buildings, which is a collaborative process. Also somebody who is helping to create careers and, and to create this organization and sustain this organization that, that, that does that for the world. Um, because everything that we do is meaningful. We have, we're so lucky to be working with these groups of people that are doing such meaningful things and designing buildings that, that not just facilitate that, but really take it to another level, that enable them to do even greater things. And forming the people... Uh, helping to form the people who carry that out uh, is just as rewarding as, as what we do for our clients. It's it's more parallel than I ever would have expected. Marcus, you, you talk about human development a lot, and you write about it a lot, and you design around it a lot. What what are the aspects of, of human ability? Like, you know, physicality yeah. is a piece of it, but what else are sure. aspects within human sure. ability? You know, I, I've had to go in and, and really go after this and understand it in specific ways. So it's not just pretty talk that I'm engaging in here. We, 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 we get measurable with these things, and we have very specific design strategies around them. And there are five, as I see them. You have physical ability, of course, uh, and we all have varying degrees of physical ability, and they vary across the lifespan. Every one of us in our life is, is going to have to deal with, um, with declining levels of physical ability if we, if we live long enough. The same is true of sensory ability, and that's number two. Sensory ability is not just your ability to see and hear and, you know, all of your senses, but um, also your brain's ability to process that information. And again, everybody's born with different levels, and we're going to see many changes throughout our life. The third one is social ability. And I, I think we can agree that people are born with, or, you know, maybe early in childhood, they get, they get imprinted with different levels of social ability. Social interaction can be very easy for some people, and it can be debilitating for others. And then you, you have these, um, these characteristics, you know, like things like autism that we don't fully understand yet. They can very deeply uh, impact a person's ability to interact socially um, and, and designing for that. Uh, the fourth one is cognitive, cognitive ability. And again, you're born with a certain amount. We can measure aptitude. We, we make an entire industry out of that. Um, but you can also develop it. Every one of these, um, these human abilities, it, it, you're born with a certain amount, 
Um, but you, you can always develop it and you can do amazing things. And sometimes uncanny abilities in one area can hide behind things that we call disabilities in another. Hmm. You think, you think about somebody like uh, Stephen Hawking. He's probably one of the most gifted cognitive minds that has ever lived. And, and if, if we, if he were to have sort of developed that after he got ALS, after he had an ability to communicate, we would never know that that intellect is there because he lost his ability to communicate physically. So it's staggering to think, and that's what I mean when you see this glint of something that's golden, his, what his intellect can do for mankind. Um, and the idea that it could be hidden forever um, behind his inability to communicate. And, and what an amazing thing it is when we develop tools that allow us to get at that potential that's there and, and make it available to humankind, you know, working through, through that. So the fifth one then is empathy. The fifth one is that the thing we've been talking about the whole time, and it's really, um, you know, continues to be the one that fascinates me the most. But, but for every one of those five areas of human ability, you know, you think about times that we've sought to measure those. And I, you go back and you watch the movie The Right Stuff. It's really interesting that when we were looking for astronauts, we were looking for people that we were going to put on a, you know, like a 20-story rocket and blast them <laughs> right. into space. It's crazy. Yeah, we were, we were looking for the most capable, the most able human beings that we could. They were physical specimens. They all had perfect vision. They all had perfect hearing. Um, socially, I don't, I don't know if they tested them socially, but isn't it interesting that every one of them was, you know, just a social butterfly and owned a red, owned a red Corvette? Um, cognitively, especially now, you, you know, the people that we launch into space, they're all mm. physicists who are, you know, these just amazing brains. Um, it's interesting, you know, when we, we try to measure that, and, and certainly within the context of universities, we, we seek to measure ability. But I think, you know, part of what really fascinates me and the, the reason that I'm so dedicated to um, people with developmental needs is that there's just as much potential um, in, in the lives of those people who have these, these, you know, these quirks or these what we call disabilities you think about what could be hiding behind those. Uh, and that's, that's more exciting to me, I think, because it is hidden, because you have to go after it. And, and to, to create places where that occurs, where you're balancing what I call the signal-to-noise ratio. Um, because when you're trying to develop these abilities, and, and that's what we do in schools, uh, you're, you're helping to advance not just cognitive ability, but social ability and sensory ability. And it takes a certain kind of environment. It's that candle that you don't want to light in the wind. It matters where it happens. And that's where, in very measurable ways, measuring decibels, measuring lumens, um, you're, you're crafting an environment where you are taking the sensory noise and the social noise and the cognitive noise, and you're dialing it down uh, in, in measurable ways, things that, ways that we can actually measure when we look at the mechanical system and how much noise it's producing. And we look at light fixtures and how much glare they're throwing out towards students versus throwing it at the blackboard. Um, it, it becomes a very mechanical thing. It's not right. just an altruistic sort of, hey, that ought to work kind of thing. It's, it's measurable in every one of those dimensions. You also, I know through your writing, you, you, you write about how so much design is generally focused on meeting challenges. Just, like, just doing enough to kind of meet that challenge, whatever that challenge is. And you see it instead as an opportunity to uh, to design toward igniting possibilities. I know we're talking about architecture, but I hope people are hearing this as being much deeper than architecture because it's it's all the same in many regards. <clears throat> tell, tell me what you mean by so much of the design is currently about just hurling over the challenges out there and then how you see this instead as an opportunity to really light people in a new direction. Well, you know, it's easy for me to talk about it, that in the context with that challenge. You know, if, if the craftsmanship of design, especially if creating spaces where you can maximize the development of, of human potential, it's about focus and it's about signal and noise. And the, the thing that, you know, as we continue to succeed as a civilization, if you were to sort of plot the curve of, uh, of the increase of signal, of, of all the things, not just the things that you can know, but also the things that are coming at you. As civilization has advanced, there's more stuff to know, and there's just more signal, which also means that there's more noise. Um, and these things have been so amped up. You look at, you know, 20 years in our class, 20 years ago in our classrooms, we didn't have the Internet. 
Um, 20 years ago, we didn't have devices that every one of us is carrying or, um, or wearing uh, that, that vibrate parts of our bodies multiple times a day that are always tapping you on the shoulder saying, hey, there's something here I want you to pay attention to. There's mm-hmm. something here I want. I think focus has gotten, diff- uh, has gotten more difficult, uh, especially for kids who are entering college, because their eyes are so wide open. Um, and, and signal to them is so fascinating. It can be difficult to distinguish between signal and noise. Hmm. And I think that that's really the challenge there. Um, and it's an increasing challenge that, that civilization is laying down for us. As signal goes up, that's great. You know, the Internet is not a genie that's going to go back in the bottle, and I don't think we would want it to. I think it's a fad, to... personally, but whatever. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> it could be. Um, but it's it's... I don't think it's something that's going to just disappear. <laughs> Agreed. So it's, it's here to deal with, and, and all of those pressures, you know, it makes it, the way we design schools now is not the same way that we would have designed schools 20, 30 years ago, and, and I also don't think it should be. So my- it's, not, it's not humanity that's changing. Our brains really aren't changing. Um, it's, um, it's that exposure to all that signal and all that noise. So, Marcus, come into our cars with us at our offices, our schools. A lot of our uh, listeners are frontline employees on healthcare channels. Help us design in 20 seconds space that truly inspires, space that ignites. What, what are a few things yeah. that we should be paying attention to as we kind of take this off of this program and, and apply it into our own lives? I, I think you've got to be careful um, to, it is a balance. I think the word is balance. You got to be careful to surround yourself with those things that remind you of what it is that you're supposed to do. And, and from a standpoint of curiosity, from a standpoint of fascination, you, you've got to put things around you that, that are those reminders of, oh yeah, that's, that's right. That's what I'm trying to live for. That's, that's what my goal is. But I think you have to be careful not to have too many of them. Um, because you want a stimulating environment, but you don't want an overstimulating environment. That's where signal kind of tips over and becomes noise. And you can do that in your car. You can do it. Um, you can do it in your house. You can do it in your office. You can do it on your phone. Sometimes take a critical look at, at what it is, all the apps, the games, the, the news feeds, everything you've got in your phone and say, am I, am I owning and using this device or is it owning and using me? And, and by that, I mean the balance between signal and noise and how much of it is signal that is really, and it can be recreational. It should. These, these should be things that really captivate you and fascinate you. Uh, how many of them are, are really the signal of, of those positive reminders of, yeah, this is what your life is going to be. Mm-hmm. And how many of them are, are just, you know, are just noise or there's so much noise in our culture right now, you know, you politically it's literally gotten to the point where we're no longer yes. focused on things that, that move us forward. We're focused on, we're not listening to one another. You know, you've got, you've got two sides that are, that are not even hearing one another because they're just saying what they, what they believe and what they want to say. Well, as you talked about designing for universities, what I was actually thinking here in studio is I, I, I hope this guy starts designing for Washington, D.C. And because <laughs> that somehow that, that aisle yeah. needs to be busted down and there needs to well, be a little cross-pollination between those terrible Democrats and those horrible Republicans to come up with a shared vision <laughs> for tomorrow. And, this turns out to be an interesting example that is quite architectural. I was in D.C. recently and I had this thought. And you're looking at the Capitol, and you see the two chambers. You see the Senate on the one side and the House on the other, and each one has their own little dome. Um, and and you, you imagine what it looks like inside. And we managed to design those spaces where they interact. You think of the well of the Senate uh, or the House, and it's, it's all of these, um, these desks that are facing one podium, yes. and one person <laughs> is sitting high. It doesn't look like democracy. And, and I tell you, the other thing it doesn't look like, it doesn't look like conversation. <laughs> It looks like acrimony, and it looks like stagecraft. And, and so many of the times you're watching these people on C-SPAN, they're speaking to an empty room anyway. Mm-hmm. And then you look at the dome that is in the center, and you say that is a symbol of our democracy, and the people own it. But wouldn't it be interesting if you design that building in such a way that, that that is the space where they interact, that that's where we come together and, and solve the problems and have the conversations under that dome? in the center. It was just, it was an interesting thought. Of course, it's not going to happen. But it's another example of the way that we shape our spaces continues to shape us. It's, 
It's no wonder that there's no dialogue happening in those spaces because they weren't built for dialogue. Marcus Adrian, as you look forward to what you are working on or backward at what you've already designed and built, what which project, just pick one, excites you the most? Always the one that's in front of me. And there's one in front of me right now that is um, right down the middle of... Um, it is dealing with um, with human potential, and it's dealing with human potential in the context of beauty. And I'll, I'll say no more about this project than to say that this, this center that is being imagined right now um, would, would do exactly that. It would take kids who are doing the really painful interactions of, of therapy, of physical therapy, speech therapy, prosthetics, you know, um, those can be very tearful and painful um, interactions. And what it does is it takes those and marries those with various aspects of the performing arts. So if you're going through the painful interactions of movement, of physical therapy, you're also working with a choreographer and you're, you're investigating the beauty of movement. And it's just such a nurturing, such a, you know, it takes what, what has always been the model of dealing with disability and dealing with, with medical issues and, and, you know, these things that can, can really, really um, be problems for human ability and instead of dealing with them in a medical context that, that says to you there's something wrong with you, we deal with them in the context of the arts, which says to you there's something beautiful about you. Mm. There's something that's worth being on stage. I, I can't wait to, <laughs> to be involved in that project. So we're going to shift gears a little bit from uh, what you're excited about designing to uh, the life that you have already been blessed in living we call it the Live Inspired Seven. There's seven questions asked of all of our guests, and we have been honored, Marcus, to have you as one of them. So question number one is, what is the best book you've ever read? I would say uh, um, there's a, a biography of Teddy Roosevelt um, before he was president. It's called The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt by Edmund Morris. Um, and anytime you, th- if, if you think you've got it rough, or if you think you've, you've accomplished something, yes. you go and read that book, and you find out that you're wrong, and you're wrong. Awesome. Tomorrow, brother, you discover that your wealthy uncle has shockingly died at 103, leaving you with millions. What would you do with that newfound wealth? I, I would have to build that center, which it's going to get built anyway, but I, I think I would stake almost all of that on, on building this comprehensive center uh, for kids with developmental needs. And the reason is because it, it doesn't exist and it needs to. We're aiming all of our efforts at developmental needs in so many little ways and, and not attacking it in a holistic way, Yeah, you know, and, and it needs to be to, to do it big and to do it um, all in one place. Our society just hasn't found or marshaled those resources yet, but it, it is coming. And to be one of the people who, who could help make that happen, not just from a design standpoint, but to, to pile on the resources. Uh, uh, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. If if your house caught fire, I'm kind of hoping I, I, that's why I hope I don't win the lottery because that would be a big calling. That's not exactly the one that I've bargained for so far. Well, I'm hoping you do win the lottery. I think we got to buy tickets to win, but you know what? Let's start buying tickets, man. I'll split sure. it with you. If sure. your house caught fire and all living things—that's your bride, that's your babies, all living animals—are out, and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one thing, just one, easy one, easy one, and it's never changed. I have a quilt that um, that my great-grandmother and my grandmother on my dad's side worked on together. And it was, it was a quilt that uh, my family tells me my, my great-grandmother was teaching my grandmother how to quilt so that both of their hands touched it, and it was just, you know, mm. a memento like that. You know, you, you get one of those in a lifetime if you're lucky. You know, it's so surprising to hear you say that. My, my, uh, a guest we just had on, Amidi, ran back in for a quilt that her mother had made and, oh, wow. and uh not only that but the way it was designed and the ants that helped to build it it was there's something powerful i guess in stitching these quilts yeah. and it's worth risking well, and the love that goes into one of those you imagine these these women in my family when they're making them that as they're stitching they of course they're praying you know they're they're saying prayers for the the people that are going to use those quilts and be covered by them for years and years it's just you know it's such an active um um task of, of love. You know, you look at it and you say, well, that's just toil. It couldn't be farther from the truth. Mm. If you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach and have a long conversation with anyone living or dead, who would you want to visit with? I got to do that yesterday <laughs> with my wife, and that, that would be my easy first choice because 
we've had so many great conversations in that in that context and not just conversations about the two of us as parents but conversations about the things that, that we're aiming both of our careers at which are more similar than either of us could have, could have imagined mm-hmm. but if i could do it now it would definitely be with gene mackey <laughs> awesome thank you what would what, what what's the first thing you'd say to gene Well, I don't. I don't even know. That's a. That's a. You really got me with that one. I. I you know. I think I would ask him. Um, am I doing it right? Is this. Is this how you would have done it? Uh, because there have been many times when I've walked away from my desk um, in the last few months, heading toward his desk, to ask him about Gene. I forgot. I've got a new one for you. I've. I've never seen this before, and to get his advice. And then halfway there, you realize, no, you can't. That's not open anymore. You can't do that. But I have these remarkable colleagues, and, and they are the architects that he made them also. So being able to go to them and, and all of us being Gene Mackey for each other, that's uh, been really rewarding. What's the best advice that Gene or anyone else has ever given you? Gene gave me some really good advice about uh, managing people at one point. Um, we were in a conference room, and I was having I was having some difficulty with somebody who was actually, you know, it's funny to say it, but above me, uh, in, in the hierarchy of the firm, this person was um, a partner in the firm, and, and there was something that was going wrong in a project, and, and I was managing the project, but collaborating with this person who had been there for much longer. And Gene was, um, um, Gene was asking me about it and really pressing me on it and saying, you have to take care of this. And I said, Gene, they're a partner in the firm. I can't, I, I can't just tell them what to, I can't manage them. And he folded his arms, and he said, if you accept that now, then it will always be true. Mm. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Listen, I, I think that would be um, absolutely what I would tell 20-year-old me. You come out of school and you're so fired up with everything that you've learned, everything that you just want to inflict on the world. And you've got a vision about yourself and learning how to listen. I think that's – and especially, you know, a few years later, listen to your wife, <laughs> not just because it's a good idea, but – uh, also, because my goodness, what she has taught me about parenting, about human potential, about you know, about how to pursue those things. Final question, and I, I wish I could ask you a whole lot more layered questions around listening because I think it's something we can all learn more about. So we're going to have you back on, and you can teach us not only about architecture and design build, but listening. So the final well, question. Go ahead. Next time, I'm going to let you talk. Oh man, that's not my job. Is to ask a few dumb questions and sit back and listen. That's my role here. I, I do a great job of that. So, final question is: It has been said, Marcus Adrian, that all great architects and people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you want your one sentence to read? Boy, you know, despite the amount of words that I've been throwing at you for the last you know fifty minutes or so, uh, I, I'd love to see that I lived up to the words he listened. <clears throat> Wow. Well, Marcus Adrian, he listened. Uh, you have done a phenomenal job, not only listening, but uh, in speaking and articulating your passion, your heart, your work, your designs, and hope for the rest of us to be inspired by what's coming next. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for what you do. Man, I enjoy what you're doing. Keep doing it. My friends, that was Marcus Adrian. This is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired. <laughs>